Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the outlook for inflation, which obviously I do all the time, and markets, and what you should consider doing in 2024 from an investment perspective. And this episode of Sense and Sensibility is brought to you by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing manager of alternative ETFs, solving today's most pressing portfolio challenges. Not only do they have sophisticated diversifying strategies like a managed futures ETF or yield curve plays like TUA, they also have the number one best-performing intermediate core bond fund from from 2023 in AGGH and an enhanced income ETF ticker HIGH that was in the top 2% of its category. Check out their Simplify, check out their website at simplify.us. You can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And before we get into it today, the uh, the trivia question, what is the most common starting word in Wordle? Wordle, for those of you who who are not yet addicted, is a is a daily puzzle that the New York Times puts out online and and uh, where you have six guesses to guess a word. Um, yeah, you can go look it up. But uh, most of you listening will know what the wordle is, and I want to know if you know what the most common starting word is. Now, I posted a blog article today uh, and there's a link in the show notes about the balance of risks in 2024 to, to certain asset classes. And it's worth reading that. I'll talk about some of that today on the podcast, but uh, but if you want to read it, it's, it's there. Um, and last week, I also talked a little bit about the outlook for inflation in my monthly CPI analysis. So I'm going to tie those together today. And, and I think on the inflation side, it's really more of a big picture thing. So on the inflation side, things have clearly improved over the last year, since the end of 2022, as we knew that they would, right? So what was surprising about last year, about 2023, was was that the money supply kind of kept shrinking, but the trajectory of inflation was not at all surprising. Um, although a lot of people came into last year thinking that, that inflation would, be, would end this year, that year at 2%. And many of those same people are saying, well, in 2024 at 2%. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But a lot of people came into last year saying, we're going to end the year at 2%. My forecast in December of 2022 was that we would get 4.2 for core inflation for, for this year, for that last year. And we got 3.9. So that's not too bad. And in my November 2022 quarterly inflation outlook, there's a link to subscribe to that. It's a paid subscription, but there's a link to that in the show notes. November 22, my median, my point forecast for median inflation was 5.1%. We got 5.06%. Now, I'm not going to nail it that closely every time. And honestly, you shouldn't count on me or anyone else to do so. Um, point forecasts are are not a good, good, good way to look at things. My goal is to get the balance of risks right. And going into last year, you know, the balance of risk, the direction relative to what the market was saying was 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 pretty obvious. You know, we, we knew the trajectory was to lower inflation, but the risk was 
that inflation would not go down as much as everybody thought it was going to go down. And, and it was obvious what that balance of risk was. We weren't going to do better than dropping to 2% by the end of the year. And in fact, there were lots of reasons to think that wasn't going to happen, and it didn't. That's last year. So for a while now, I've been saying that we'll end this year, 2024, in the high threes, low fours uh, of, of inflation. Okay, so, so just a little bit below kind of where we are now. Um, some further improvement on inflation, but not a dramatic further improvement and a lot of movement in the internals. Um, my point forecast for this year in February of last year was 4.3%. My current point forecast is 3.7%, and that's median inflation. Um, so it's come down a little bit, but it's the same basic theme. I really haven't, you know, I've been saying this high threes, low fours for a long time, and nothing has really sort of changed to make me think that that's not going to happen. My forecast has declined over that last year from 4.3 to 3.7 because money supply growth has been lower for much longer than I thought it would be. Um, and although I haven't forecast 2025 yet, if I had done so last year, this decline in M2 would have caused me to lower my 2025 forecast meaningfully for whatever from whatever I thought it was going to be. But we haven't kind of gotten to thinking 2025 yet. Um, but even in 20, 2025, 2024, and even in 2025, we're not looking at inflation back at target. Inflation at 2% or 2.5% on median. It's going to be very hard to achieve that unless the Fed continues to shrink the balance sheet and the money supply also continues to shrink. And, and I don't expect those things to happen. They could happen. And if they happen, then it's going to change what my forecast is and my expectation. But I don't really expect that to happen, uh, especially because mortgage rates have stabilized and, and come down some uh, from what they had, the high levels they'd gotten to. And, and that has caused mortgage, mortgage origination to increase. And the correlation between mortgage origination and money supply growth is pretty strong. And, and that is, by the way, you know, I've just spent a few minutes trumpeting how well I, I, I've done in, in some aspects of my forecasting. Let me point out one way that I really missed the story in 2023, and I, and I learned something along the way. You know, the Fed's balance sheet, as I said, have said for a long time, it's not binding on bank activity. Banks are not reserve constrained. Um, they're capital constraints. So they can lend as much as they want up to the limit of their capital. And that's very different from what it was for most of the history of the Federal Reserve, where banks were constrained on how much they could lend. The, the, the control over the money supply was because the Federal Reserve uh, constrained the amount of reserves in the system and banks have to have reserves in order to make, to make loans. And the Fed has stopped doing that. And, and so the, the connection, because banks are not reserve constrained, I believe that the Fed raising rates without shrinking the balance sheet wouldn't have affected the money, money supply growth so much, or it would have had an indeterminate effect. And as it happens, the, the Fed also shrunk the balance sheet, so I had the direction of money growth right. I just had it, for the, I had it right for the wrong reasons. 
To control money growth in the long run, the Fed does need to control the flow of reserves. You know, the, the constraining bank lending through the mechanism of controlling reserves is, is the way you have to do it in the long run. Um, but to lower money supply growth in the short run, it turns out that all the Fed needed to do was to crush one of the main engines of lending more directly, and that's the mortgage market. So my assumption had been, and I've talked about this on some of the podcasts last year, um, was that demand for loans is pretty inelastic, right? So if I need a loan and, you know, a personal loan and they're offering me 7% and the rate goes to 8%, I'm probably still taking out the personal loan because, you know, or if I if I need a construction loan or, or you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, a, a private corporate borrower and I'm being offered, you know, an, uh, you know, 7% uh, rate to go and, and uh, uh, you know, finance my receivables or whatever. Um, and, and now I'm being offered an 8% rate. It's just, it's really not going to change a whole lot about how I do things. And so my sense was that the demand for loans was pretty inelastic and whereas the supply of loans as interest rates goes up is, is actually fairly elastic. And so money supply growth was going to be indeterminate with rates. You didn't know exactly how those were going to interact. What has always happened in the past, again, is that the Fed would simply control the amount of loans that could be made by controlling the amount of reserves in the system. If it's just interest rates, it looked indeterminate to me. I mean, and, and that, by the way, turned out to be approximately correct, except in the mortgage market. And the problem in the mortgage market isn't that the demand for loans was low. I mean, it was, but the reason it was low was because turnover was low. And the reason turnover was low was because the existing borrowers, like people who own homes right now and have mortgages, had great rates. And so they weren't letting go of the homes. And therefore, the people who wanted, who would ordinarily have gotten new mortgages, didn't get new mortgages. And therefore, one of the main en engines for new lending um, dried up. Uh, but unless rates continue to increase, that's a limited game. Eventually, the market adjusts to the higher rates and, and people, you know, who have great rates on their mortgages have to move because of other things happening. Um, uh, and, and anyway, those low-rate mortgages eventually get paid off. They eventually amortize away. So over time... Having a 6% or 7% mortgage rate doesn't completely change, you know, mortgage origination. Eventually, mortgage origination goes back to kind of normal. Um, it's been a very long time since we saw interest rates move as fast as we did. So, you know, figuring out exactly how much that would crush mortgage origination was, was something I didn't see coming for sure. Um, anyway, in the short run, the connection between money growth and, and mortgage origination turns out to be crazy high. Um, I, I have a link to a chart in the in the, the show notes. Um, and next week, I'm going to write more about this on the blog, because it really is remarkable. If you if you'd sort of, if I had realized how, how strong the impact of those higher rates would be on mortgage origination would be on on housing turnover and on mortgage origination. And the connection between that and them, I, I would have been, I would have had a bit I would have been right still, you know, more or less 
but would have had the direction right or an M2, but but for the right reasons. And I probably would not have been surprised at, at M2 growth being as low and, and, and actually negative for as long as it has been um, had I understood that dynamic. But now I understand that dynamic. So I think in 2024, because that's what we're talking about anyway, but you have to look back at what you've done wrong before you kind of look forward, right? I think in 2024, mortgage origination is going to recover. It's already starting to recover a little bit. Um, money growth will recover, not to 9 or 10%, but it's at not minus 3, and it'll go to, you know, plus 4 or 5. Um, and, uh, and where we end up on 2025 inflation depends on how that process evolves. You know, if the Fed really does ease a lot over the course of this year, and if rates really do go down a lot, which I don't really anticipate, then mortgage origination will recover more, money growth will recover more, um, and and whether or not the Fed, and of course the Fed, if the Fed does ease that much, they're not going to be also shrinking the balance sheet. So, so if that happens, then I think you get you'll get a much bigger echo in inflation going forward. So, so. The exact ripples of how this will play out in 2024 and 2025 are are tough to figure out. And that's why, you know, looking forward and trying to forecast 2025 is, is much more challenging, obviously. But for 2024, a lot of this stuff doesn't really matter all that much um, because what's happening in 2024 is already kind of baked in the cake to, to some extent. Um, so for 2024, we're looking at high threes, low fours, and median inflation, I think, I think inflation will sag into the middle of the year, be lower than what I think it's going to end the year at, because rent inflation is going to keep declining for a little bit, decelerating until it gets to around 3%. And then rents are going to recover, and we're also going to have core goods doing better than flat, which they are now. Used, used car prices are not going to continue to decline you know, forever. Core services, X rents are going to probably improve some as well. And so we've had a lot of luck, as I've said, over the, the, you know, the balance of 2023 that's helped inflation get as low as it is. And, and the, as I've said also in the last couple of CPI reports, the hard part is beginning now. And so while we'll end 2024 with a little bit lower inflation than we have now, it's going to go down first and come back up, and um, it's not going to be dramatically lower. So what's that mean for investing? Okay, so, and again, I've, well, I wrote some about this slightly differently in the blog, but um, same basic opinion, obviously. Um, what does this mean for investing? When I, when I look at the investing landscape, as I do with inflation, you know, I'm generally not forecasting very much on on what I think is going to happen. You know, what's my point forecast? We have to make point forecasts. Um, I hate making point forecasts. Um, it's, it's sort of the wrong, it, 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 it's the wrong general idea. You know, I'm a risk manager. I want to think about what the balance of risks is and so which way I should be shaded. And it's less important that I say inflation is going to be at 5.06% median inflation for 2023, and more important that I'm just right relative to what the market thinks. If I get the direction right, you know, let the economists argue about the point forecasts, but 
for investors, we just want to know which way to shade things. So I spend a lot more time thinking about the range of, of possible things that can happen and their relative likelihood. So let's, let's, if we rewind a little bit, we go back to the beginning of last year. We had inflation at 5.5% and long-term interest rates at 3.5%. And the ba- it was very clear at that point the balance of risks for bonds, for fixed income, the balance of risk was very bad. If you had inflation at 5.5% and rates at 3.5%, there weren't a lot of ways that it could work out great for bonds. It was possible. You could have had inflation just completely collapse. And in fact, that was you know the market's forecast was inflation would collapse to 2 but wasn't going to do any better than that. And so, and that was what was priced into the market. And so you knew going into last year that the bond market did not look like a great place to be. Even if the Fed hadn't tightened it all, there was no way that long rates or short rates would be at 3.5% if inflation was at 5 or 6, right? So whether or not the Fed did it or the market did it, bonds were going to be in a world of hurt uh, in 2023. In fact, they were. In fact, if the Fed hadn't taken action, the bond vigilantes might have moved rates even higher. By October, rates were at 5% and inflation was down at 4%, core inflation. So if you can do math at all, <laughs> that looks better than the way we started the year. And so the balance of risks had become much better for bonds. Did I expect a 120 basis point rally at that point? Absolutely not. And it was but at the same time, it was hard to sell bonds. It was hard to be short bonds with a 5% yield. Um, in fact, I, I did talk about buying tips when tips yields got over 2%. Um, uh, it was hard to think about being short bonds at, at, that, at that level, um, at least until inflation turned around and stopped going down. And so far, it hasn't. But now we have rates back near 4%. 4.14 on, on the 10-year as I, as I say this. And core inflation is at four, around 4%, 3.9. And so the balance, risk, balance of risks is much better than they were in January of last year, but, much, but worse than they were in October of last year. And uh, so, and, and frankly, in the long term, I'd expect long rates to be between 4 and 5% if inflation is around 2 and 2.5%. Two and so, so they're not wildly off. But but the balance of risks for fixed income isn't great. You know, I, there are ways that you can get lower interest rates from here. If the Fed, you, but you should keep in mind that, that the ways that that would happen, um, two of the ways that can happen are sort of already priced into the market. One of the ways is that the Fed eases aggressively. But the short end of the the, the, the fixed income market is already pricing in 150 basis points of eases in tw- uh, this year. It's, so that's already priced in. So to be optimistic about rates uh, on that basis, you have to think the Fed's going to ease more than 150 basis points. That could happen, but not without something really bad happening in the economy. Um, and frankly, I think 150 basis points, the Fed has said many times that they, that's not their plan. So that that seems unlikely. But that's one way that you could get lower. You could get bond yields at 4.14. could turn out to be an okay deal or even a good deal. But that's already in the market, right? You have to do better than that. The other way is that, is that inflation expectations um, uh, could be, you know, could go down. 
But the long end already prices in, well, the five-year inflation break-even is 2.27% over five years and 2.3% over the next decade. So the market's already pricing in that inflation is is tamed. It's back to normal. You know, two and a quarter percent on CPI is like two percent on PCE. So we're essentially the bond market is pricing the, that the Fed has won and the Fed has won for the next 10 years. Could inflation expectation, could we go into deflation? Yeah, sure, that could happen. But with the market already pricing in an appreciable decline in inflation from here, an appreciable decline that stays stable around 2%, you've already kind of got most of the good news kind of already in there. So the balance risks of risks there are, again, we've sort of, most of the good news is already priced in, as they say. And on top of that, we have this dynamic, and I've talked about it before, that, you know, we have a trade deficit that had been very large and is declining. And we have a federal deficit, a, a spending deficit, a budget deficit, that is still very, very wide. It's come down a little bit, but not very much. And so the difference there between the trade deficit and the budget deficit has to be funded domestically. And since the trade deficit is going down, I mean, if we have to fund more of this domestically with domestic savings. When the Fed is buying bonds and the Fed's increasing its balance sheet, that's savings, and so that takes some of it. But the Fed's, in fact, going the other direction. So we have this, this much greater demand for savings um, domestically. And, and typically, the only way you get that is that you, you offer savers higher interest rates. And so, so the underlying dynamic of the bond market just isn't, isn't really good. Again, could we get a bond market rally from here? Absolutely. And and I would not, you know, issue major mea culpas unless I'd missed something fundamental. But the balance of risks here are are to higher rates. In the stock market, the stock market is sort of an interesting uh, in an interesting situation right now because if you just look at the overall the S and P. Um, you'd say eh, the, the balance is not, you know, is, is, is for, for lower stock prices. Um, but a lot of that is because of just seven stocks, the magnificent seven as, as they're often called. And that's Apple, NVIDIA, Meta, that's Facebook, Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet, which is Google, um, the magnificent seven. So if you look at the S and the PE of the S and P, it's about 21. And the S and P itself is up 24% since the end of last year, end of 2022. The S and P, if you take those seven stocks out, has a PE of only 18, 18.4. And it's up only 11% over the last year. The magnificent seven themselves have a PE of about 40. And they're up 110% over the last year. So you can see that all of the, <laughs> the vast majority of what's going on in stocks and the vast majority, the, the, the biggest reason that stocks look expensive comes from just these seven crazy stocks. So the, the, the overall market PE of, of 18.4, if you take those seven out, doesn't look that bad except for one little thing, and that's that, you know, uh, uh, margins, corporate margins are at like 50 year highs or something like that. And 
And so if you kind of regress those a little bit more to the mean, then earnings go down and and sort of the implicit the implied PE goes up. And so so a, an 18 and a half PE if you're at record margins or close to record margins isn't isn't a cheap market. Isn't even really a fair valued market. It's a little bit expensive. And so um, but take out those seven stocks and the rest of the stock market is not egregiously mispriced. Um by the way, what happened to those people, all those people that were saying that high equity prices were due to really low interest rates, you know, that so it's a low discount rate, so that means we should have high stock prices? I don't hear anything from those folks now because we have higher interest rates and those people should be saying, gosh, we really need lower stock prices. But you don't hear anything from them. And I think I am just going to go on a limb. I think it's because those people are all flogging stocks and that's how they get paid is flogging stocks. So um, there's something to the whole interest rate uh, and equity multiple theory. It's explanatory, um, but it's it it doesn't help you unless you know where interest rates are going to go. But anyway, um, but I digress. But the 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 point is that where I have clients who are long equities, we. Or putting them in equal weight indices or, or you know, other strategies that de-emphasize those big seven. But even if you didn't have, you didn't own any of those seven stocks, even if those were the only stocks that were overvalued, you can't plausibly have those stocks come down and uh, and not bring down the rest of the market. You know, if Apple and Microsoft and NVIDIA, you know, all drop 30%, the rest of the market isn't going to go up. You know, um, you know when the bow breaks, the the you know the uh, cradle will will drop. So so you know stocks have very high correlations amongst them, and so when the generals fall, then the rest of the market will fall. But that will be kind of a probably a good time to look at the rest of the market outside those top seven and say, hey, there might be some relative bargains in there. So. So summing all this up, what's my kind of call to action here for investors? Okay, the first one is inflation isn't dead. And the bond market's pricing in inflation at 2.3% for the long haul. And there aren't a whole lot of ways you can get much better than that. And there are a fair number of ways it can be worse. So in fixed income, there are very few reasons to own nominal bonds instead of tips around 2%. Right now, the 10-year tips rate is 1.8%, which, which is a little low, but it's not, not terrible. 1.8% real return over 10 years with, with no risk is a pretty decent return. Tips rates are probably also going to go up when nominal rates go up, but at 1.8% real rate plus inflation, it's a decent low-risk investment. Tips funds, of course, being different than tips, but still, if you have to own one or the other, um, at, these, at this pricing, you should own the inflation-linked alternative almost exclusively. Uh, also in bond land, don't own long-term bonds with interest rates like this, given the balance of risks, unless there's something specific you're hedging. Short rates aren't going to come down as fast as the market is implying, which is why there may still be pain in the long end. So take those high rates that the market is implying, but take them for a shorter term. Right, take them for a five-year duration uh, instead of a ten-year duration. You can get basically the same yields. The yield curve is 
pretty flat now. And so don't take as much interest rate risk um, while, while getting those yields. Again, because of sort of the dynamic of savings, it's sort of hard to think you're going to have dramatically low, dramatically lower rates anytime soon. So when, those, when your five years are up, you'll probably have another opportunity to, to invest in similar or higher interest rates. In equity land, avoid the Magnificent Seven. Uh, the rest of the market isn't terribly expensive. It's still somewhat expensive, so I wouldn't be maximum long risk or anything. Um, but, you know, you probably should be long equities with with the, the XMAG7 being at, you know, an 18% PE, even though that 18, 18, 18%, 18 PE is, is probably flattered by great earnings. But keep some powder dry because... If with the balance of risks being lower, you're going to want to have the opportunity to buy stocks if, in fact, we do have a setback, which we may or may not. I can imagine stocks going up some again in 2024, but the balance of risks says to be cautious. And then, and then finally, I didn't really specifically talk about, about commodities, but you know, spot commodity prices have gone steadily lower over the last 18 months. Um, but the collateral that, you know, when you own a commodity index, you own futures collateralized by by fixed income. And those and the, the, those collateral rates have have gone steadily higher, you know, five and a half percent for T-bills right now, or five and a quarter. So the balance of risks in commodities with commodities haven't gone down a whole lot after sort of, you know, ballooning um, post-COVID – Spot commodities have gone down a whole lot, and collateral is earning five and a quarter percent. The balance of risks for commodities is higher. Um, with collateral earning five percent, you break even, even if the commodity prices drop five percent, and that's a better situation than it has been in quite a while. Um, if commodities just go flat, you'll make five percent. So, as an exa- as an example, when the where the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which is a broad commodity index, it's lower now. If you look at the BCOM, it's lower now than it was in May. But if you actually own the BCOM, you're actually two and a half percent ahead, or so, because the total because you've earned on the collateral, you're actually ahead. If you look at the Bloomberg Commodity Total Return Index, it's actually up two and a half percent since May. So, so risk wise, I'd take some of my the the risk budget that I would normally put in equities, and I put a little bit more of it in commodities than normal. And if, in fact, stocks do correct um, significantly, then you take that risk and you put it back into equities where you kind of want it. But but right now, given the balance of risks, I'd be more heavily tilted towards commodities. So that's what I do here. This is already a long podcast, but, um, but I do want to uh, have a little aside here. People have asked me what podcasts I listen to other than this podcast and what I'd recommend. And the short answer is that I listen to almost zero market-related podcasts. Um, I listen to a couple of not-about-markets serials, um, you know, fictional stuff, but it's so easy and inundated with the fire hose of information and, and have my own thought processes corrupted. Um, Imagine that you're a mechanic 
Okay, here's how I try to explain this. Imagine you're a mechanic. Suppose you're a really good mechanic who can listen to a car and you can tell what's wrong with it. And every day you listen to a, to a podcast about cars and different sounds they can make and what people think that means. And you listen to all these podcasts day in and day out. And that might give you some new insights from time to time, but it comes at a cost because you, it fills you with a whole lot of unhelpful stuff to sift through. And then the next time you listen to a car, you have to wonder whether your thoughts about what might be wrong with the car are based on your own analysis and, you, and, and what you've honed over years and years or, or, or something you listened to. Maybe I'm thinking about that because, you know, the, the guy on that podcast said that that little kink, 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 kink has, you know, means that the, the universal joint is out of whack. Um, or is that something that I thought? And so, it, and so, you know, that's it's the same with market stuff. If, you, if you're listening to all kinds of market stuff and, and then you, you have a, per, a, a certain opinion on the market, you're not always 100% sure, did that come from me or did it come from, you know, the market guy? And so... Since I make a living on my market, you know, acumen and, and I talk about what I think about markets, it's probably best for me if I don't listen to a whole lot of that stuff. Obviously, people send me stuff and, and so and I read stuff. It's not like I, I don't listen to anybody, but I do try to immunize myself a little bit. But by the way, that, that, that whole thing is the reason I'm so thankful that many of, so many of you listen to this podcast um, I hope it means you're getting more out of it in terms of insights than you're getting unhelpful stuff to sift through. So um, uh, anyway, I, I, I hope so. Uh, like I said, I, I, I do occasionally listen to a podcast that people say I have to listen to, um, but I really avoid listening to podcasts about markets and, and economic stuff. Having said that, people do want to know, they do want recommendations. So I will say, uh, let me start with some of the shows I've been on that, um, that I like. Um, there's Orion's The Weighing Machine, which is um, uh, the, the podcaster is my friend Rusty Vanneman. He does a great job. Um, that podcast is kind of directed towards advisors, but individual investors can get a lot out of it as well. Um, you know, Rusty knows markets, but he's also a really good interviewer, and, and that's sort of a fun, a fun podcast and I think you know, reasonably insightful. Um, the uh, if you're an insurance guy, the Insurance AUM podcast, which I've been on a number of times, um, they uh, they do a really good job there. Stuart is the um, is the the guy who does uh, all the interviews, and and um, we seem to have a really good rapport. I think it's I think it's sort of fun. Full disclosure: I haven't listened to many of the other uh, Insurance AUM uh, episodes. Um, but it's a growing podcast, and, and I think he does a good job. So that's worth listening to if you're in the insurance space at all. I've been on Bloomberg Odd Lots. Um, I don't listen to it. Um, I, I find the, the guy insufferable. Um, I think either you're an analyst, which he's not, um, or a journalist. And if you're interviewing a lot of people, you know, you're really a journalist, and you need to ask questions, not push your own ideas um, unless, like with my friend Rusty, you really are an analyst and you're really good at it. And then, you know, if you can be a journalist on the side, that's clearly what you're doing. But the odd lots, uh, the guy pretends that, that he, you know, is, is an analyst and he's, he's not. Anyway, he never had me back after the one time, partly because he didn't like that I ridiculed MMT 
and the fact that it was absolutely going to end badly uh, in inflation, et cetera, which he thought was was ridiculous. Um, he's a big MMT fan. He's a trillion-dollar coin fan. He's not very smart, and um, and the problem is that he thinks he is. So when I listen to Dumb, I end up yelling a lot at the podcast, and, and so I don't listen to Odd Lots. Um, I could probably make a really long list of podcasts that I have listened to in the past that I don't like. Uh, okay, now there here are ones that I haven't been on, but I have listened to, and I do and I and I do like. Um, there are lots of decent interview shows. I like We Study Billionaires, the Grant Williams podcast, uh, Dimitri Kafinas Hidden Forces. Occasionally, I listen to this. Um, podcast called What the Truck by Freight Waves, which is all about transportation and trucking and freight in the United States. And, and I, I, it's, it's, really, it's really kind of interesting in a geeky kind of way. Uh, Behind the Memo by Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital Management. Again, somebody who really knows what he's doing. It's always, it, it, is, it is insightful to listen to. Um, again, I don't want to pollute what I think with what Howard Marks is thinking. But if there's going to be somebody that you pollute your thinking with, Howard Marks is probably not a bad guy to do. Um, and then finally, if you're a, a technician, like technical analysis, uh, there's one by the uh, uh, by the certified market technician organization um, association, whatever. Uh, anyway, the, the the podcast is called Fill the Gap, um, and that's pretty good. So for those of you who have asked about podcasts, there you go. Now, looky here, we're pushing 40 minutes on this podcast, which might be a record. So let me quickly uh, answer the trivia question and thank you for your time. Um, the, the trivia question was, what's the most common starting word in Wordle? And, and the most common starting word turns out to be either adieu, A-D-I-E-U, or audio. In both cases, there are lots of vowels, and so it helps you figure out which vowels are, are in the word or not. Um, what the best starting word is, is kind of open for debate. The New York Times Wordlebot says slate. Um, you know, the most common letters in the English language, uh, the most, most frequent letters in the English language are E-T-A-O-N-R-I-S-H, and you have E-T-A and S in that list. Um, some researchers at MIT <laughs> say that the best starting word is salet, S-A-L-E-T, which is a weird type of helmet from the Middle Ages. Um, the weird part there is wordle researchers, or people from MIT doing wordle research. And you think inflation guy is a weird niche. Uh, for what it's worth, the word I usually start with is there, T-H-E-I-R, because the most common two-letter pairing in the English language is T-H. The most common three-letter pairing is T-H-E. And so you get, and you also get the E and the T. And the, so you get a bunch of different E-T and R in there. So you have a lot of those good things going for you. But the, the Wordle researchers say you should go with Saleh. Anyhow, like I said, that's a weird niche. But, uh, but there's actually a research paper out there if you want to look at it. Anyhow, that's all for today. I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to this long podcast. Please like it and subscribe to it and pass it along, refer others. 
You can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Follow me on X Twitter at, in, at inflation underscore guy. Visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge. And most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy 